On with the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Voices of Misery podcast. I am very delighted because today, you guys know how I like to talk about COVID and I like to talk about all the things going on with the world today and just how crazy we're going down this weird dark path. But lately, it seems like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And I know a lot of people are anxious to get back out there in the real world, but I don't want you guys to think that everything's over. And just to prove my point that I think that we are going to go right back on down this hellish hole of despair and control, I brought a guy in that I think is going to be a very good expert, a very good voice of, of reason, and just a, just a voice you guys need to hear. And he's an author of an amazing book. His name is Nick Corbishley. And oh my goodness, he has a great book about something that really freaks me out, and that is the vaccine passports. Nick, I'm going to let you take it away here because no one can explain it better than you, sir. How are you? And can you please introduce yourself to the Voices of Misery uh, listeners out there? Yeah, no, no, that's a good note. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I've, the, the book came out last week um, on Thursday. It's called Scant, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital Identity Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom. And it's um it seems to be selling quite well um on amazon and other places it's um it's a book that i started writing in um in i think it was like end of september when i was just really recovering from covid myself ironically um and i i wrote it in about three months so it's record time i've never written a book before i've been writing articles for various uh, websites and blogs, um, mainly on the financial and the financial and economic area. Um, but the interesting thing is that by the time we got to finishing the book, half of the situations we described in the book had changed. So I mean, like we, you know, it was a really difficult book to write because of the incredible volatility and just the speed of change that was going on around us. So when I started. Writing the book, we were in the middle of the Delta wave. When I, start, when, I, when I finished the book, we were in the middle of the Omicron wave. And a lot of the way people were thinking about COVID had changed. Even those people who were extremely in favor of virtually all the restrictions were beginning to maybe see certain issues with the vaccines, for example. So it's, um, it's been an adventure. It's been a roller coaster ride. And here I am. I've done... Uh, up until a month ago, I'd never done any interviews on podcasts or radio. Um, and now I've done something like 11 in the space of a month, including on the Russell Brand show, which has had more than a million viewers. So, so yes, it's been, it's been a hell of a journey. And it's, it's, the journey is continuing. The roller coaster ride is continuing. Because as you said, we're being told that things are going to get better and we're moving out of the, um, the pandemic, and we are we we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but but there are elements to that story that are not true. And I'm here to tell you what those elements are. And I can't wait to get into it. But before we get into all this stuff, because there's a lot of meat and potatoes here, we're going to jump into as far as the vaccines, mm -hmm. the mandates, and everything like that in between. I must ask you, Nick, where are you from? Because that accent is just amazing. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm British, born and bred, um, born in Wales, brought up in England of English parents. Um, but I've been in Barcelona for the last 21 years. My wife is Mexican. Um, and yeah, we are, we're considering about maybe moving to Mexico in the next six to nine months as well. So I think that my accent is strange because it's kind of like, <laughs> is this mixture of uh, influences. And, and if I speak in Spanish, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, people cannot place me. Um, I've got elements of Mexican, I've got elements of Spanish from Spain, I've got elements from Argentina. So it's a weird little mix of, of influences. 
I absolutely love it. It's a very, it's a very pleasant sound. And uh, I'm very happy that you're here on the show because I have a lot of questions. And I've been one of the guys who was against the mandates from day one. I, I was against 15 days of slow to spread. I was against everything. I mean, just initially when this whole thing started, I was at work one day and they were like, yeah, yeah we're, we're just closing up and we're going home. Like, what's going on? I said, yeah, this thing called COVID-19. It's it's tearing up there. Everybody's getting sick and people are dying. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. You know, like, where did you get this information? And why am I hearing it from my boss for the first time? I didn't see it on the news or anything. I go home. I tell my wife, like, what the heck's going on? She's watching TV. Everyone's freaking out. So, of course, it, it was panic in the beginning for maybe the first couple of days until, you know, you get to sit down and kind of spend some time with yourself and assess the situation and just kind of, you know, get some viewpoints from from just your experiences with the media and whatnot. I wanted to ask you. Uh, what was your initial perception of what was going on when the world kind of turned a couple of years back with COVID? I mean, it was, um, it was a very strange experience. I remember the first time hearing about this virus, I was in a bar with three, three friends of mine, one British friend and two, two Spanish friends. And this British friend suddenly said, you know, have you heard about the virus in, in China? And this must have been in, I would say, mid-January. So it was pretty early. And we didn't really talk about it much. Um, after that, I did a little bit of looking looking into it. And it, it did seem quite serious. I mean, I remember when, um, because, I mean, I work in economics and finance more than anything else. And I remember seeing what, when China began shutting down Wuhan and other parts of the country and thinking, wow, that's, that's serious. I mean, and that's huge. That is like the second biggest economy is closing down. And, and I remember the stock markets just kind of like continuing to rise in the West yeah. and everybody kind of ignoring it. And I was telling certain people, so I was saying, like, I think we're going to start seeing some serious volatility in the market. This doesn't look good. And they kind of ignored me and the, the markets just kept going up and up until, and I remember the weekend when this happened, um, Italy, suddenly stories started coming out about Northern Italy and how there were little kind of like explosions of cases in, in towns and villages in, in Northern Italy around Milan. And the Monday after that, the stock markets began kind of like collapsing. And, you know, that was for me, that was kind of like the beginning of COVID-19, even though it was like three weeks before we got locked down in Spain. Mm -hmm. It was the moment where it kind of like I realized we are entering a new phase of our lives. Um, I didn't for the life of me expect that we would see almost every country in the kind of advanced world or advanced economies um, going in, get, getting locked down. I mean, let's face it, up until that experience, we'd never, the idea of a lockdown, I mean, I'd, I'd not really used, heard that expression before. I mean, uh, and as never. far as I'm aware, it was kind of an expression that they used in prisons. No, I mean, like it's something that you lock down a prison when there's been some serious problems and there's been a riot or something, you lock down, you take away the privileges of the prisoners. Mm -hmm. And for me, the idea, you know, th this expression lockdown, it, it just came out of nowhere. In Spain, we call it confinement, confinamiento, which is an expression that I'm more familiar with. But everything was new. Everything was absolutely uh, brand spanking new. And like you said, I think at the very beginning and in the initial, for me, it was in the initial weeks, um, we were in a state of shock. and. I remember the day where we, the, the day the lockdowns began, I lost 50% of my income in one day um, because three of my clients just told me we don't need you anymore. Um, and it was, it was staggering to suddenly find that you in one day. I mean, I'm used to this is, you know, if you're freelance, you're used to kind of like losing clients and gaining clients and, I always, you know, put a lot of emphasis on diversifying my risk by having as many clients as possible. But I lost three of my six major clients that day. And one of those clients I'd been working for for 12 years. And he, I was basically let go over a WhatsApp. Um, and my wife on the same day, she got furloughed. So, I mean, like we were in a position where 
you know, we lost around about 55% of our income in one day. So oh, it was, it was absolutely staggering. At the same time, <laughs> my mother-in-law had just arrived from Mexico to visit us. So, I mean, with her usual sense of timing. <laughs> and, and so she was locked down with us. And uh, so I was locked down with a lot less money than I, I, I need to survive. And with my mother-in-law, um, in the, in the bedroom next door. So it was all, it was all an interesting experience. Um, so I mean, like, I think that at the very beginning, we were just, I was, I was very much, um, I would say afraid of the virus. Um, I, because of what I'd read, um, about, about what was happening in China and I, my wife and I got masks ironically before anybody else we in barcelona we ran out of masks very early on because many of the chinese residents bought the, bought all the masks from the pharmacies and they sent them to their to their families in china so we were among the only people we knew who had masks and um, because i'm somebody who just basically thinks look if if something's going to happen it's best to take certain precautions sure. just to be on the safe side that makes so we sense. bought some very good masks and um and yeah, we were, I think that after maybe a month of being locked down, I started to, to think more deeply and started to research more deeply into what was going on. Um, I think it's taken a long time to begin to realize, to put certain pieces together and to realize um, what kind of experience we're actually being put through. And the continuation of that experience, because now that we've been told that things are getting better, um, we... Um, I mean, like, let, let, let me put it this way. I remember the first two, three months, the messaging in so many media channels was we are never going back to normal again. Yes. That, you know, we even had this creation of this expression, the new normal. And this was this was for for a brief period of time. This was kind of like shut down our throats. This was repeated endlessly, almost like on a loop. And. And then it's weird because like when we're now at this phase, we never hear expressions about new normal. We're actually being told we are going back to normal. Yeah. Whereas the reality in my view is, it's, is, is the absolute opposite. We're going back to a completely different reality unless we are very careful You're and right. very vigilant about where we're being led. Well, that's because they saw the polling numbers and the polling numbers, when you say things are going back to normal, actually polls better than as opposed to saying we're never, we're never going back to normal. I feel, I mean, that's just me being myself here, just uh, not really trusting the government. And November is just yeah. around the corner and they've been getting hammered, at least here in the United States, on their whole messaging. So I, I'm with you there. I agree. I mean, I think that there's a, certainly an element of that. Um, in, in France, the President Macron, I think it was last week, he he kind of like, you know, France is one of the places where they had the strictest restrictions for the vaccine passports. Yes. It was an absolute nightmare. And they just kind of like said that they're suspending almost all the restrictions. And this is just conveniently a month before the presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And so in the UK, you, I mean, the UK, the English government, I mean, it, it gets complicated, but so many of the COVID uh, rules are taking place on a kind of like national basis within the UK, which is really weird. So, it's, so when I normally when I talk about the Boris Johnson government, it's the British government. But when it comes to the COVID rules, it, you have the English government, the Scottish government, the Welsh government, and the Northern Irish government. So, so but the English government, Boris Johnson, he it was the first government to really begin withdrawing a lot of the restrictions. And the irony in this case was they did it because they had been caught out mm -hmm. um, breaking their own rules so many times yes. that they were left with a choice. They were left with a choice. Either the rules go or they go. And I think that that is kind of like they made this cynical mm -hmm. decision. Okay, we want to stay in our jobs and we probably don't want to face legal consequences. So we will, we will um, begin to reopen society and begin to give back the privileges because that's what they are now we're not talking about rights we're talking about privileges and i think in most cases i think it's very important that people realize this, this um we are suspending these rules 
we are suspending the application of the vaccine passports at a domestic level. In almost all countries, that is the case. It's not, they're not cancelling it, they're suspending it, which means at any given moment, they can be reactivated. Um, if we have another resurgence of the virus or whatever, then they can very quickly reactivate many of these uh, restrictions that they are um, suspending. It's absolutely horrifying when you put it in those words, because at any moment, just like you said, they can pull this thing up. And the thing that scares me the most is that so many people were so willingly going along with everything that they were told to do. And I understand the first two weeks, okay, I'll, I'll admit the first week of those two weeks of so 15 days of slow to spread, I was a little nervous. We didn't leave the house. I, we, you know, we mm-hmm. stayed in the house. We played by the rules. And then, uh, you know, I'm my own worst enemy because I'm very stubborn. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it. So my reckoning came very early just out of my own stubbornness. Mm-hmm. I so I mm-hmm. want to ask you, um, because you obviously wrote this amazing book that is that is extremely relevant to everything that's going on. When did it click for you, like, maybe things aren't exactly as they appear? When did it click? Um, when I started seeing that the vaccine passports were definitely happening. So when I, when, I mean, there was lots of talk about this in the first months of the, of the pandemic. And they were saying we need certain, they were calling them immunity certificates. So they weren't actually calling them vaccine passports. Um, but that was that was a little bit suspicious to me because I've been writing about um, digital identity. I've been writing about biometric identifiers. I've been writing about the war against cash for five or six years. And so that kind of set off a few alarm bells when I started seeing you know, the vaccine passport, the immunity certificates, digital certificates, and also the way they were using the pandemic as a kind of like, as a way of, um, intensifying the war against cash, which is something that that has been ongoing for well over a decade. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like that's. But but when I when I saw in I suppose it was like December and January, you started hearing voices, people like Tony Blair, um, and you started seeing like World Economic Forum was beginning to talk about you know the, the way out of this is with these vaccine passports. So we had the vaccine and then within about a month um, after the rollout of the vaccines, it's like, okay, we have these vaccine passports. And that's when I started to be a little bit more suspicious. You know, I, I, I saw the possibility how this could lead to something much darker. Um, and I started, that's when I started to research it. I started to look into what was happening in Israel um, from February when they launched their Green Pass um, and seeing the kind of levels of discrimination and segregation that they were unleashing, um, I, I then realized that that was coming to me because the European Union was going to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Although, ironically, the European Union, when, when, they, um, when they established their legislation for the Green Pass, so they called it exactly... By the same, by the exact same name um, as the Israeli vaccine passport, um, they they specified within the legislation that it could not be used in a discriminatory way against people who chose not to get vaccinated. I mean, this was within the same legislation, and then two to three weeks after that went live, that was in June 2021. You saw countries like France, Italy, um, Germany begin to use it in exceptionally discriminatory ways. And constantly escalating this kind of like attack on civil liberties. So it's, for me, it's kind of like how you promise something. Governments began to kind of like say, yeah, we're going to do this, but don't worry. It's not going to, it's not going to lead to discrimination. And then two weeks later, it's, it does. It's being used to <laughs> ban people from sitting on a terrace in a bar and restaurant. So, so I mean, like, it's like realizing that there's no possible public health argument for justifying banning somebody who is unvaccinated from having a drink on a cafe terrace outdoors, because we knew by then that it was almost, it was, you know, the, the, the possibility of spreading the virus outdoors is virtually nil. Um, I mean, we had a, we had a Mexican friend in Toulouse in the South of France who basically was, uh, was kicked off her online program that she was doing an online course because she was unvaccinated. 
So, I mean, like you see these things happening. It's like there is no public health justification. This is punishment. This is about forcing people to comply, to obey. And that is a whole new system of existence. This is a whole new way of living with power, interacting with power. And, and yeah, by that point, I'd written, I think that by July, August, I'd written some like three or four articles in the US about um, what was happening in Europe. And that, that brought me to the attention of this um, American publisher called uh, Chelsea Green, which is in Vermont. They've been publishing fantastic things for decades. And they're one of the few publishing houses, I would say, in at least in the English speaking world that has been willing to kind of like to 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 explore what has actually been happening with kind of like the pandemic um, and getting off kind of like the, 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 the well-trodden path and looking at some of the darker aspects. So so I mean, I was approached by them um i think it was in july at the end of july and they said you know we we've seen your we've seen your articles that we really like them would you be interested in expanding this into a book into a short book and and i said yeah definitely and then i came down with covid two days later <laughs> so i mean like that's part of my roller coaster luckily my mother-in-law had gone home about two months earlier so i mean like we had i spent my mother-in-law stayed with us for about 450 days in oh, total. Boy. Oh. <laughs> in an apartment with like three <laughs> bedrooms, not the biggest apartment. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was an interesting experience sharing that space with, with your mother-in-law for 450 days. And in the end, oh. it was really good for us because it allowed us to financially get through this kind of shock to our, our income. So we were, but, but yes, it was, it was still, it was not, it was not, the, it was not the perfect scenario. Well, you did mention one thing that really I feel like goes under the radar that a lot of people are not catching. And you mentioned three words. You said war on cash. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper into that because a lot of people are just not even paying attention. It feels like they're trying to erase the dollar so they can control it. And we're going to be moving to some digital currency. Not sure if that's my conspiratorial side or if there's any kind of truth to that. Um, just by watching the news and how easily they shut down, uh, just, just Visa and MasterCard shut down all funds in Russia. And they, they said, we yeah. shut down all operations. They took away all the money. Can you imagine yeah. if, if the government said, I don't like the way you uh, posted on social media, we're going to take away your funds. And just like that, you go from having money in the bank to having nothing. Is this a possibility? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah this is, uh, it's not just a possibility. I mean, this is something that they are telegraphing. Oh, um, the, I mean, like not, not necessarily turning people off so that they, they, they wouldn't go that far as to say that, but, um, so I mean, like the pandemic was certainly taken advantage of by the kind of traditional, which we say enemies of cash. So organizations like Visa and MasterCard, tech companies, uh, banks, um, so I mean, governments to a certain extent don't like cash. And they've been waging a kind of like uh, an escalating conflict against it for, like I said, over 10 years. And the, you know, one of the first things that happened in, I think it was like March, April, with kind of the economy was a warning from the World Health Organization that maybe cash is an important vector in the transmission of COVID-19. And this was seized upon by the media. It was um, magnified. You know, these fears were magnified. And I think that that had a huge impact in, in every country. Um, so countries that were extremely cash friendly became a little bit less cash friendly. Countries that were already far down the path um, towards a kind of cashless existence went even further down that path. So, I mean, the UK is a really good example. The UK is... A, now, many people don't use cash for anything in the UK. Um, and that has certainly been the case since the pandemic began. So this, this had a kind of galvanizing effect. Um, on top of that, we have almost 90 central banks on the planet currently experimenting with central bank digital currencies. Mm. So 
that's if you look at those 90 central banks, those are the most important central banks on the planet and many lesser central banks. But they include the Federal Reserve, they include the European Central Bank, they include the Bank of Japan, they include uh, the Bank of England, um, they include the People's Bank of China, which has already launched its central bank digital currency, the digital yuan. But it's not kind of like nationwide, but they've got it. It's 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 functioning in I think it's something like ten cities, and they're they're expanding it to more regions. So so it's um it's definitely something that people should be talking about. They should be aware of this because this is this is how money functions, and how money functions always has an effect on how our lives function. Absolutely, and. One of the things that central bank digital currencies will enable is much greater tracking and surveillance of our spending habits. Um, so if you are somebody who is concerned about, you know, wanting to maintain a certain anonymity, a certain privacy, then cash is one of the last bastions we have. And if a central bank digital currency comes into effect, which is looking increasingly likely, then the chances are that cash either will be will no longer exist or it will be it, it will be eroded away. Its use will be eroded away by basically, I imagine, by um, incentivizing the use of the central bank digital currency and kind of like penalizing the use of cash. So so I mean I think that that is something that is is clearly on the agenda. It's going to happen, my guess is, in the next two to three years. Uh, the technology exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel, I mean, like, this is only, I have no proof for this, but my personal feeling is that one of the reasons why um, regulators, financial regulators and central banks and governments have been extremely lax with the launch of cryptocurrencies is because they've wanted to observe how they work, how they function. Um, and for me, the fact that Bitcoin, we still don't know the founder of Bitcoin. We still don't know who created Bitcoin. Exactly, the world's, so much. The world's most important uh, cryptocurrency that has, in many ways, it kind of revolutionized the way the economy works. We don't know who created it. That is a little bit suspicious to me. So, But I mean, like, I think that, um, <clears throat> the fact, I think we've got three central bank digital currencies. So these are being referred to as CBDCs. We've got three that are currently in total operation. I think that one of them is in Nigeria, which is ironic given all the financial scams that happen in Nigeria. Um, and the other two, I think, are in the Caribbean, in some of the islands, um, in the Caribbean. And like I said, China is a long way down the path. So, I mean, like the, um, or, or Agustin Karstens, who is the uh, president of the Bank of International Settlements, uh, which is like the central bank of central banks. It's like the central bank that coordinates many of the things that happen with, between central banks. And um, he said, at a conference, I think it was last year or the year before, he said that um, when we spend a dollar or we spend a peso, and I'm paraphrasing here, we have no idea what that money goes on, how, how that is spent. But when we spend, when we have central bank digital currencies, we will have very clear idea and we will have very clear control over how that money is kind of, over how that is done. So, I mean, he wasn't actually saying we're going to control how you spend your money, but he was clearly saying we are going to have a very clear idea of exactly what you're spending it on. Um, And in the UK, the Bank of England went further and they they were talking about programmable money. So they were talking about um, the, the central bank being given the power to essentially program money so that people cannot spend it on certain things if it's decided that it's not in their personal interest, which is very interesting. Oh, to hear. my goodness. To hear a central bank talking like this. Uh, Absolutely so I mean, there, there's, 
I mean, that is that is very scary. So I mean, that that what that means is, you know, they can program money not in terms not only in terms of just you know how um, what it can be spent on it. They can program it in terms of how long it lasts. So if they start giving out, let's say, um, uh, universal basic income, which I think is probably something that is coming our way as well. They've been doing it in Canada. Um, They've been doing it in Canada. And they're doing it in Canada. Like two thousand bucks a month, right? Exactly. They're they're launching it in Canada. Um, So, so one other thing they could do if they start giving out money um, is you start. They they can make it um, time limited. So they can, they can, this, this can encourage you or almost force you to spend your money, not to save it. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, what they can do is they can, um, they can put negative interest rates and they can put negative interest rates quite low. So we've had negative interest rates in the, in Europe for a number of years now. And it's not directly affected most people with bank accounts. It's certainly affected large companies with bank accounts so if you've got a, you know if you if you're a multinational corporation you've got money in the bank then then you may be paying a certain amount of interest for having money in the bank it's a very strange concept it's um, very backwards it's very weird it is absolutely it, it it goes against what it's almost like anti-natural as they would say here in spain um but but i mean like the the possibilities if you do away with cash and you only have central bank digital currencies, then there's nowhere where you can kind of like take your money to without, if, if they put um, negative interest rates on these accounts, then you're stuck with that. So you, it, it forces you to spend money. And I think that what is truly terrifying in a world where we only have digital money, in a world of pure digital money and no cash, your money is never yours. Never. Your money is always residing in a digital account somewhere or is moving from one account to another account. But you will never ever say, look, I just want to have my money. No. And, and another thing that I think should concern us is that if we have, um, if we have bank runs in the future, then yeah, you won't be able to take your money out. Your money will be kind of like, you know, if they decide to bail in your account is the opposite of bail out. So if they if they decide to bail in the bank, should I say, then that means that they will be using the money of creditors, which can mean like uh, bondholders, for example, shareholders. But it also could mean depositors. Um, And in all the kind of like in most jurisdictions, you have this limit about. $100,000 $100,000 or 100,000 euros, 100,000 pounds, um, up to which point your money is guaranteed by the deposit insurance. But if you have more than that, then yeah, you could lose some of that money. And as we've seen in the last, we've seen in the last two years, government promises don't normally stack up to much. So if, even if they say, you know, your 100,000 is completely safe. We don't know if that's necessarily true in in the case of a kind of like a widespread bank run situation, as happened in, for example, Argentina in 2000, I think it was 2001, 2002. So it's, um, it is something that I really encourage people to, to keep a very close eye on because, I mean, like people, I think that there is this focus on, you know, the idea of having your account turned off. And I think that is the ultimate horror yeah. <laughs> the idea of you being divorced from the fruit of your work because as happened in Canada recently you participated in a protest movement or you simply donated certain funds to a protest movement that was legal in its day I mean like that is that is that is almost like the definition of arbitrary power that is tyranny if you and control somebody's that, money, you control their minds, you control their bodies, and you will you will you will own nothing and like it. That's pretty much the mindset here. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the um, the shift of power from individuals to governments and to central banks 
Because it's not just, I mean, I think we have to be very wary of just labeling this as something that's happening in government. This is happening at so many different levels of institutions. So, I mean, government's playing an important role in this. But I mean, like, so too are supranational organizations like the World Health Organization. So too are central banks. And, and we, you know, most normal people, they focus their rage, they focus their frustrations at the government because it's the government you vote for. But, but ultimately, the central bank, central banks have become massively powerful over the last 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. And they have had a huge impact on our financial situation. I mean, like the inflation we are living through right now, I mean, like they might try to tell us that it's all down to Putin and his war against Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and that's madness. Um, I mean, like uh, the president of the prime minister of Spain, Pedro Sanchez, tried that one uh, a couple of weeks ago. It didn't go down very mm-hmm. well. I think that Joe Biden has been saying the same thing. I mean, like it's. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, for me, that is perhaps the most insulting thing they can try to do. It's just, it's literally insulting our intelligence. But you um, know what? It's working. That's the sad thing. It's working. You see all the mainstream media outlets. They're all doing the work for them. They're all parroting the same exact narratives. And, and it's, it's almost like they all get the same email sent out. They're all in the same email chain. Okay. This, these are the talking points tonight. It's all Putin. It's all Russia. It's not. This has been going on for a while. This inflation has been rising. I mean, even under the beloved Trump, they, you know, a lot of the people are saying everything was so great under, which it was better. I'll take that over this any day. But he raised the debt as well. And then Biden's just taking it to a whole nother level. I mean, guy's an absolute idiot. It's, it's horrifying. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really about how much money is being created at yeah. the central bank level. Okay. And I mean, like that has been going up. Um, in Europe and in the United States for ever since the global financial crisis. Um, And what happened was when the pandemic hit, we went through the biggest creation of money at a global level ever experienced. And And this was happening not just at the monetary level, but also at the fiscal level. So it wasn't just central banks creating money, it was also governments creating money. So I mean, like you started having kind of like these stimulus um, programs that allowed people to get um, very low interest rate loans, and you were getting money, you know, people being given money essentially in the United States. Um, so I mean, like what you actually had at that point was a huge amount of new money being created at the same time that the, the the, the number of products and surf- services circulating in the economy was much lower yeah. um, because we were going through lockdowns. We were, re- we were just re-emerging from the lockdowns and we had these huge imbalances. But, I mean, like this has been, you know, this has been baked into the cake since the kind of, you know, the, the collapse of uh, Lehman Brothers and, you know, the, the bailouts that, that, that preceded after that, both you know, in in Europe and the United States, I mean, most of the most of the new money created. It's interesting. Most of the new money created at the global level, um, at least by the central banks, was um, in Europe and the United States. Was the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve? Their balance sheets increased enormously, almost doubled in the case of the European Central Bank in the space of two years. That's a staggering, staggering thing, and that that is like the definition of inflation. So when they say to you, you know, this is, you know, it's all down to Putin. I mean, like, I hope, I hope people do have enough intelligence um, <laughs> to realize when they're being lied to. But I don't know. I mean, like, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I don't I, get my news from television. My wife and I haven't had, we've not had a television for about 15 years. We've been, we, we get all our information, all our news from, from the internet, from, we read our news most of the time. Because I think that's a much better way of processing information. I believe so. Um, it, yeah. It's very dangerous to be just watching things all the time. I think listening is better than watching. Um, and, and I think, like, for me, like, when, whenever we go back to England to visit my family and we watch, you know, we have to watch the BBC News, we have this cultural experience of watching the news again. It's so strange. It's so strange to see the levers they're pulling, the, the amount of 
fear they're creating, whether it's about, I don't know, a couple of days of snow that's coming our way. It's like, that wasn't like that was 15, 20 years ago. I mean, we weren't terrified of snow. And now we suddenly are. It's like every single thing that could possibly happen is seen through a prism of fear. Um, and yeah, it's, I hope, I mean, but the scary thing is that we've kind of like, we've, we've segued from, um, from a global pandemic to a, a very serious war and a global economic crisis supposedly being caused by the war without skipping a beat. It's and one people to the are next. just, yeah, people are suffering, I think, mental whiplash. Um, I myself, I spend, you know, my, my job is to report on what is happening in the world. My, and I spend 10 hours, 11 hours a day doing that. And I find it more or less impossible to keep track of what's really happening because it's too much. We really don't know what's happening in, in Ukraine. It's really hard because of the fog of war, because of the amount of misinformation that's being circulated. Um, and to a certain extent, the same is happening with, with, with COVID-19. It's, it's, it's really hard to keep track. So if you do a 10-hour-a-day job in, in a factory or in a shop or in an office or whatever, and you come home and you want to find out what's going on in the world, the simplest thing is just turn the news on. Exactly. And you watch it for 30 minutes. And you think you are better informed as a result of that. And and that that's the scary thing when when a majority of people still operate in that way, then it's very easy to kind of like to keep a majority of the population completely misinformed about the most important things. It's 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 so crazy when you think about it. And they really did know how to play this to a T. I mean, they use people's compassion in the beginning from the whole mm-hmm. your mask protects me, my mask protects you, we're all in this together, everyone stay home, kumbaya, let's sing songs together. You had celebrities uh, singing songs on on Twitter and people were just oh, it was a heartwarming moment. And then all of a sudden they slowly started easing in. Basically they were grooming us. To the point where, okay, this is about us and each other and taking care of each other. And now you got to start doing this. And now the other side's the enemy. If you don't do as we say now, you're the bad yeah. guy. Yeah, that, that, that is something that I think a segment of the population feels quite uncomfortable with. And that, that's where I get a little bit of hope. I think that there are, even among the people who are fully vaccinated, I think that there are there is a significant segment of that population who are uncomfortable with the idea of treating the or othering yeah. the people who aren't vaccinated. I think that and there's obviously a large segment of people who will who will absolutely go down, go go along with just about anything. But I think that there's a large segment of the population who are like, well, actually, my friend is unvaccinated and he's He's got some interesting arguments. He's a nice guy. Uh, my brother is vac- unvaccinated. And, you know, I love him. He's my brother. Um, I don't think that these descriptions of him dovetail with my experience of who he is. And I think that there's an element of that. And I think the fact that when Omicron came along, it just completely evaded the vaccines with incredible ease to the extent that in certain countries and certain data suggest that People who are um, vaccinated are, you know, that they have higher infection rates than people who are unvaccinated. Um, Now, that is the opposite of what a vaccine should do. That really is the opposite of what a vaccine should do. A a vaccine, Uh if it doesn't eliminate or eradicate the virus, it should at the very least significantly reduce the transmission. And if we are seeing... It absolutely does nothing. I mean, like, I think that there is still possibly a, a, an argument to be made um, that it may reduce your risk of serious symptoms. Maybe. Yeah, um, may, 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 but, maybe just a little bit. But I mean, but I, I, I think feel like that I'm a what, on the vaccine. other side, on the other side of the ledger, we are seeing that there are more and more potential side effects, potential adverse events. Yeah. This is coming to light right now. At the same time, curiously, that we're all focused on what's happening in Ukraine. Um, that to me is like the biggest story right now. Beyond, maybe, maybe not quite as big a story as possibly World War III, but um, just under that 
under that story, under that headline, World War Three, then you know the the release of data for, um, about the Pfizer vaccine mm. from the FDA yep. is absolutely ignored by the media. Mm. Um, it's it's, it's really staggering to watch. It's it is staggering to watch, and it, it is a reminder of just how important a role the mainstream media still plays in maintaining power structures in the world today. It's absolutely even though, even though they're losing influence, even though they're losing influence, they're losing readers, they're losing viewers, they still have an important role in setting kind of like the narrative. And unfortunately, there's still enough people who are kind of like, uh, who get all their information through the, the mainstream media channels. I mean, the thing is, it's just quicker and easier for a lot of people. It's just easier to sit there and turn on the TV and just look at someone telling you exactly how to feel and how to think. It takes more effort to pick up a book and read and do research and listen to different voices and, and come up with your own opinion about things that are going on is to just turn on the TV. And I feel like a lot of people are lazy and, and they played to that. Stay home and watch Netflix. I mean, they, they knew exactly what they were doing. I feel like this whole thing was a coup from the start. And um, just to get over here to your book real quick, because I know we have, you know, like limited time here and mm-hmm. I, I, and your, your book scan, it, it's all about, you know, the vaccine passports. And I feel like a lot of people don't know exactly what that means because so many people were, were, were lining up to do this in New York to get that vax pass Excelsior and just to get back in life. They were beaten down to a point. They don't even know what they're signing up for. So I would like for you to take some time here and just elaborate people tell us what the vaccine passports even are and why we should be so afraid of this. Okay. I mean, the vaccine passport is a form of digital identification that shows, I mean, it comes with a QR code um, that shows um, whether or not you've been vaccinated or it confirms in the case of Europe, it shows that there are three ways of qualifying for the vaccine passport. One is that you have, um, you, you, you are fully vaccinated. Um, another way is that you've had a recent infection um, going back, I think, six months. So this is, distinguishes Europe from the US. So it's one positive about Europe is that at least there's some recognition of kind of natural immunity. And the third one is um, if you've had a recent negative test. So, so this is how you qualify for a vaccine passport, at least here in Europe. And in the US, you have, I think it's like 21 states that have um, vaccine passport systems in operation. And that number is growing. I think that I read recently that there's another three or four that are that are on the verge of doing that. And um, which would mean that you're almost at half the number of states. And there are even rumors that red states are potentially going down that route as well. Um, So it's. And this, this is the scary thing. So in vaccine passport, if you, every country has had a different experience with it. You know, it depends on the government in place, how much they really want to kind of um, to push it, how draconian they want to get with it. Um, so, I mean, in Italy, Italy for me is probably the worst case in, in Europe. It's, it's absolutely terrifying what they've tried to do in Italy. And it doesn't surprise me to a certain extent because Italy is a very important country in the European Union that they have to keep under control because it has a very large economy that is in serious trouble. It's heavily over indebted and they've got um, a tendency. I mean, like they had uh, quite a, a strongly right wing and a strongly left wing, curiously enough, this, this kind of mixture of populist governments in power two or three years ago and they don't want to repeat that so they have at the moment the prime minister of italy is mario draghi who is a former goldman sachs banker who is the former president of the european central bank so i mean like they have absolutely they've treated unvaccinated people like almost like prisoners of war i mean like they, they have banned them from being able to work they have banned them from being able to get on a bus and go across town or, or get on a train or the metro and go across town. So, I mean, they have made the lives of people in Italy who are unvaccinated, who are not up to date with the vaccine, a living hell. Um, I think that the last thing they did was that they've made vaccination mandatory for anybody over, over the age of 50. 
And if you are over the age of 50 and you are unvaccinated, you don't work and you have to pay a fine to the government for not, not taking the vaccine. So, I mean, like it's each country's most, you know, the, 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 the experience depends, you know, differs depending on each country. But, you know, the, the terrifying thing is that it, these vaccine passports allow the establishment of the infrastructure for digital identity, number one. They condition us to this idea of living in kind of like a digital checkpoint society. So where people just accept, okay, well, if I need to go to the gym, I just use my mobile phone to show who I am and that I'm, I'm vaccinated and, and that's okay. And I don't see, it's not too much of an issue. Um, the same, you know, if you go into the bar or restaurant, people, people, a lot of people just accept this. And the third thing about it is that it, it creates this, um, this system of forced compliance. This idea that, you know, you've got to do what the government tells you to do to be able to survive in the most basic of ways. Yeah. That is a whole different social contract to the one we, we, we are used to. That is the end of basic personal liberty. It is the end of privacy as well, because, you know, if, if these vaccine passports um, give way to the digital identity, which is pretty clearly what is happening, because governments are, you know, they are, not admitting, you know, this isn't in the, on the front pages of newspapers, but, you know, governments, if you look at, if you research what governments are doing, they're all pushing ahead with digital identity programs. Yeah. At the same time that they're saying, we're getting rid of the vaccine passport. Um, so what they're doing, they're, they're expanding this while they're telling their public that, you know, it, 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 this, this is in the past now. Don't worry. We're going back to normal. It's, it's an incredible amount of cynicism. Even for somebody who has used the incredible amounts of cynicism, it's shocking to me uh, to see just how cynical government has become in terms of in the way they lie to the, to the voters. What do you think the end game is with all this? Because you got, I mean, the forced vaccinations, I never thought in my lifetime I would ever see a lockdown like you know, for two years, I never thought I'd see people getting fired from their jobs and not getting a vaccination. I never thought I'd see our president basically go on TV and say, you know, this other half of the country is terrible, evil, unwashed, dirty people. They need to be, you know, ridiculed and people on the news basically bringing it back to the segregational days where it's like, you know, they, they can't even go out shopping. They can't do this. They can't do that. Just the level of vitriol and hatred that I've seen over the past couple of years, I, I never thought this would ever happen in my lifetime because I thought we were past all this and it's self-inflicted, yeah. which is the worst part. Where do you see this going? What do you think the end game is there? Um, I mean, like this is where you get into kind of like speculation. I mean, I think the end game is control. Um, I think that we now live in a world where technology um, offers incredible amounts of incredible ways of controlling population, incredible ways of controlling behavior, incredible ways of tracking behaviors, incredible ways of kind of like forcing this kind of compliance. So I think that one of the reasons this is happening now is because sim quite simply the technology exists and it has existed for some time, but it's kind of like they've needed the catalyst, the moment to be able to unleash these, uh, these new technologies. And this is where the pandemic has come in. It's it allowed them, it's given them the, the opportunity to, 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 yeah, to, to, to put this into effect. And when people are terrified, when people are in a state of constant fear, they will accept just about anything and everything. When people have been alienated from each other, and I think that's one of the important things is what... Um, the, the idea of mass formation that is coming into, you know, people are talking about this, the fact that we were completely disoriented, we were separated from each other, we were atomized, we were alienated, we were cut off from our loved ones. This is kind of like, this puts you into a psychological, um, a psychological situation where, where you're willing to accept just about anything. And I think that that has happened to a lot of people, people have accepted very dark um, 
ways of thinking. They, they, they've been encouraged, like you said, to, to, to resent, to despise, to mock, to ridicule other people because they, they chose not to get a vaccination. They chose not to take a, a medical product. Um, that is, I mean, one thing I say in my book is any government that is willing to unleash hatred um, among a large part of the population, maybe the majority of the population against the minority of the population, that government will be willing to do it against any other minority, any other moment. And we've already seen this with the Russian situation. I mean, like the way they are um, mobilizing yeah. hatred of everything to do with Russia. I mean, to the, to the point where, you know, you've got um, Tchaikovsky concerts being cancelled. <laughs> like, this is, this is yeah. incredibly insane. This, this, is, this is a society that is losing its mind. Yeah. Even U- UFC mind. fighters were getting their, their, their fights cancelled because they were yeah. Russian. I mean, like it's in the UK, it, you know, we've got the Wimbledon tennis competition coming up yeah. in the next few months. And one, I think like the number one Russian tennis player was told, you know. Djokovic, it, right? No, no, not Djokovic. Um, I can't remember his name. No, he was the he one that couldn't told, go because he, was, he wasn't vaccinated. Yeah, yeah Djokovic okay. is the one who was unvaccinated. But, but this Russian, the number one Russian tennis player was told, look, if you want to play at Wimbledon, you're going to have to denounce Putin. I mean, I'm not sure if they actually went this far, but they were talking about this as, as if it was completely normal. So it's, it's yeah, this, this, is, this is madness. Um, but yeah. it's, this is how governments have always managed to rule. They've managed to rule because they've, they've divided populations against each other. And the thing is that we are now living, I think, through one of these ex- existential crises you know or maybe not existential but one of these incredibly um what's the word incredibly tumultuous crises okay um biden himself said that we're, <laughs> one it's like every three or four generations you know we're we're, we're seeing this new world system or new world order new world he, order he said those words out of his mouth new world order verbatim even biden was able to remember those three words and put them together in the, in the right order which is which i think is a pretty impressive for the guys that's, that's a um, feat for biden that is a feat um but uh, but yeah it's it, it is that kind of when you see governments doing this encouraging people to hate and dividing populations and polarizing, then this is not a good time to be on the wrong side of power. And that is what they want. You know, they want people afraid of stepping out of line. Um, and the thing Absolutely. is, if we don't step out of line in enough numbers, then we are going to be moving into a society where we don't have any kind of civil liberties. We don't have any human rights. We don't have, we don't have any privacy. We don't have any personal freedom. And I think that that is the fundamental message of my book. You know, we are, mm-hmm. we are at this moment in history where um, we have to ask ourselves, what is my red line? Where do I say, okay, that is too far. That is going too far. And I was hoping that most people would be saying, well, you know, they want me to hate my brother because he's, he's unvaccinated. They want to hate me yeah. to hate my friends because of that. Yeah. For a lot of people, that wasn't a red line. Um, for some people, you know, it's the idea of vaccinating children as young as five years old, that to them is a red line. But for many others, it wasn't. So it's, it's the question of where is your red line? We need to be asking that question all the time because, because we're being pushed further and further into a kind of like, into an existence, into a system that is not going to be very pleasant for the vast majority of us. Absolutely. And they, they saw how far they could push people. And it seems some people just have shorter fuses than others. And they got our bodies with the mandates. You know, they, they're going to get our minds with the social credit score. They're going to get our money with the, with, with the getting rid of cash. It's like, what else is there? What are we going to be a bunch of empty shells just walking around, barely making, just barely well, making. I, mean, I think that it's, it kind of depends it does depend on us. Um, we still have, I think, a window of opportunity um, where people can make a difference. I think there are, there are signs. I mean, people are 
having these discussions, the fact that you've got someone like Joe Rogan talking about these things, the fact yeah. you've got someone like Russell Brand talking about these things, the amount of vitriol that is unleashed against these people for, for actually providing space where these ideas can get attention. I mean, that shows that they are worried. And I do think that, you know, there are, I do think that the Omicron has shown, you know, there are, there are serious, serious limitations to these vaccines. And a lot of people who had the, um, who maybe had two jabs caught Omicron and now saying, well, I'm not taking a third one. What is the point of taking a third one if it doesn't protect me from catching the thing? And I think that those numbers are going up. So if you look at most countries, you know, countries like Spain, I think that had 80, 85% vaccination rate. And now it's kind of, if you're looking at the booster, you're looking at about 50, 55. Um, I know people who are like saying, I'm I'm not going to have any more. So I think that there are flaws to their plan. I think that there are little, little fragments of hope that we should certainly be focusing on. Um, I'll give you one happy story before we leave. Uh, okay. I don't want everybody to be. To think that. I don't want to be just a pure voice of misery. Um, so, hey, that's my job. <laughs> exactly. It's a story about something that's happened in Spain recently, and I think it shows that if you club together enough people, and you actually you can actually use um, technologies in your favor. So, I mean, like what happened was. Um, Spain, as in so many countries in the West right now, uh, has seen an absolute decimation of uh, bank branches and ATMs. So, I mean, like, to the point where you have branches in Spain which don't even have cash. We have bank branches that don't even have cash. They don't offer cash services in branch. Um, and this was basically a way of catering to kind of like the under 40s or the under 45 um, generation. The problem is like the people who were over 65, 70 were completely left out. They were completely lost. Um, they don't know how to use mobile money. Um, yeah. they, a lot of them were struggling even just using the new ATM systems. So they kind of like, they reached the point where they said, we've had enough. And they, this one guy just set up a petition. He said, like, you know, who agrees that we need to change this? And millions of people signed it. And the interesting thing, so, I mean, the bank started to pay a little bit of attention, but when it got really interesting is when <laughs> this movement began talking about stopping using credit cards and debit cards. <laughs> And they said, we're going to, and they, they organized this through places like Telegram, through places like WhatsApp or whatever. They used the social media to get this message out. And the banks realized, oh my God, these are the people who have money in Spain. So like the elderly, the people over the age of 65, they're the ones who have capital, they have houses, they have money, they have pensions. Um, the people under 30, they don't have much money. And they started bricking it. They started getting really scared. and most of the banks have now said, okay, we're going to reintroduce cash services in the branches. We're going to help you navigate the new ATM systems. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little breadcrumb, but it shows that when you hit them where it hurts, which is their bottom line, they have to start listening. So, I mean, the, you know, if, if the elderly in Spain can do something like this, then I think other people, especially younger people, can do more. The only thing that worries me, and I'm going to end with, 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 with a slightly dark message, I fear that young people have very little understanding of even what privacy is and exactly. what um, personal freedom is. They, they, I don't think they're in touch with these issues. They are more concerned about marketing themselves and social media. And, and that, that, that does concern me because generally in history, it's always the youngest generations that, that lead kind of like the, the fight back. Exactly. And I'm, and I'm there with you. Nick, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of the most enlightening conversations I've ever had here on the show. And I, I wish you weren't so busy because I can do this thing all <laughs> night long, sir. I mean, oh my God, there's so many things to talk about. And I think you, uh, you know, you, you hit on Joe Rogan and, um, Russell Brand, but you know, there's people like you as well. 
and there's a lot of other people out there with uh, smaller voices and 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 you know just people writing books and things like that and, and even us with this show now over the past year or two you know we've been hitting on the covid content a lot and it just takes one you know and then we all just kind of branch off and we all find each other and get the message out there because people need to hear this kind of stuff so i want to thank you for coming on the show and i want you to let everyone know where they can buy this amazing book and throw out some plugs okay. where can people find you yeah yeah um so the book can be bought on amazon um the name of the book i'll repeat it is scanned why Vaccine passports and digital identity will mean the end of privacy and personal freedom. Um, it can also be bought at the publisher, which is chelseagreen.com. And if you want to see what I'm doing, I mean, like my, my personal blog is nickcorbishley.com. And my Twitter handle is nickcorbishley. Excellent, sir. I'm sure everyone will be buying that book because, oh my goodness, we have to we we have to do something. And I think your book's a great yeah, place yeah. to start. To I mean, what, one of the things survival. I say to people is like, if you are if you are unvaccinated, buy this book for a vaccinated friend. If you are vaccinated, read it. Um, I think it's really important. I hear it. Thank you, sir, for coming on the Voices Misery podcast. You have a good night. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Nat.